The only thing and only way you can find real fulfillment, satisfaction, and purpose in life is through a relationship with God. And the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. We're continuing our series this morning that I started last week entitled, From This Day Forward. We started this series last week with a message entitled, The Point of No Return. And I talked to you about temptation and what can happen sometimes in the heat of the moment if we don't take the time to lean into the grace of God and allow His power to help us in any and every situation. I don't have a lot of time this morning to go back and review any of that, but if you didn't hear it last week, you need to go online and check it out. Today, the title of my message is this, and that is, What Went Wrong? What Went Wrong? Today and next Sunday, surrounding Valentine's Day this week, I'm going to be talking to you about the marriage relationship. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God gives us his ideal for marriage. And he says it like this. He said that a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. And the two, listen to this now, and the two shall become one flesh. That is so important. Paul even talks about that mystery in the book of Ephesians. He talks about the profound mystery of how the two becomes one. And I'll be talking about that in another sermon in this series. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus gives us his input on marriage when he says, What God has joined together, let not man tear it asunder or tear it apart. In other words, the mystery of marriage is that two become one. And Jesus said, don't let anything destroy that unity of marriage. Don't allow anything to come in and destroy that oneness. Because God's ideal for marriage, listen to me, is permanence. That is his ideal for marriage, is permanence. I just want to celebrate this morning a couple in our church that has just celebrated 65 years of marriage. Bonnie and Farrell, will you stand up back here? I, I see you back here. Check, check them out. 65 years of marriage. Come on, get on your feet. That's, that's worthy of a standing ovation today. <laughs> Awesome. I think we're doing good at 35. To know I got 30 more to go. <laughs> 65 years. I think, um, I think Bonnie was 15 years old when, when they got married. I've heard a little bit of the story. She probably doesn't know this, but I've heard a little bit of the story that um, when she met Farrell, that she just knew this was this was the man this was the one she fell head over heels in love and so when they went out on their first date now this is this is a good um a good trick maybe for some of you other young ladies in the house today but what she did is she left her scarf in the car when she got out knowing that he would have to come back and bring the scarf back to her that's clever that's clever and it must have worked 65 years and so in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, in the book of Ephesians, and in Matthew chapter 19, the word of the Lord talks to us about the permanence of marriage. That it is supposed to be permanent. Now, before I get into the real meat of this message this morning, there are three caveats to this message. Number one, I want you to know that as this message is coming out of my heart today, that it is for married people, not for people who are dating as I talk about the permanence of marriage. I don't want you to think, well, pastor talked about the permanence of marriage or relationships today, and so I guess that means that, you know, I gotta go back and make up with Timmy, and uh, Timmy and I gotta start dating again. No, I'm not talking about dating, I'm talking about 
marriage. Marriage, your option is permanence. Dating, you have other options. It's called scroll, select, delete. <laughs> right? You still have that option. Now, you don't have that option anymore after you get married, but you do. Young folk, you still have that option now. That if this guy or this young lady that you've been dating, you've been seeing some things that just doesn't add up, and you've been seeing some things that are uncharacteristic of what God calls us to look for in his word, in a spouse, and maybe you've seen the way that uh, his dad treats his mom, or uh, you've seen the way that his mom treats his dad, and you know, well, that's probably the way that he or she is going to treat me. You've still got an option. Scroll, select, delete, and move on to somebody else. Amen? So I'm not talking about those that are dating. I'm talking about those who are married. Secondly, I want you to know as we go through this message today that I am not talking about your past. I'm talking about your present. Because listen to me, I'm not here to condemn, nor am I here to judge anyone regarding your past. We all have a past. Amen? But I would ask you this morning that if you are married and this is not your first rodeo, I would ask you not to put up any walls and get defensive about some of the things that I'm going to talk about this morning because what I want to do is I want to help you from this day forward. Maybe you didn't get it right the first time, but from this day forward, you can begin to get things right. And not only that, I'm asking you, if you would, for just a moment to think about the person beside you or the person behind you or the person in front of you that maybe hasn't gotten married yet and how what I'm going to share today will help them so that they can get it right the first time around because all of us here have been touched by divorce and we do not want them to experience the pain that comes along with that kind of separation in our lives. And then here's the third thing I'm saying, and that is, or, or the third caveat of this message, and that is I'm not encouraging anyone to remain in an abusive relationship, all right? If your spouse is physically abusing you, don't just call on Jesus, call the popo. <laughs> Amen? And get help and get protection. And let us help you get the help and the protection that you need. Somebody say amen, amen to that this morning. So I want you to go with me, if you would, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul begins to talk more about the permanence of marriage, but then he also begins to talk about what goes wrong in relationships because, see, I believe that it is a profound mystery how the two become one, but I think it's just as much a profound mystery how the one becomes two. How does that happen? How does, a, how does a marriage get to the place? How does a relationship get to the place? You know, when you were dating and when you first got married, that you would use up all your minutes on your data plan just to hear that other person breathe on the other side of that line. And now you've come to a place to where you can't even communicate unless it's through one another's attorneys. How does it get to that point? Why is it that passion dies in marriages? What went wrong? We're going to look at some things this morning that will help us. But let's start here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 8. Notice what Paul said. He says, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Listen, there is absolutely nothing wrong with being single. If we're not careful in the church, sometimes we isolate and we ostracize single people. And we say to them, now you go back there and take a recess, you know, while we married people talk about the serious stuff. No. Listen, being single is not an endangered species. You can fulfill God's purpose and plan for your life as a single person. Don't think that you need another person in your life to help you fulfill the plan and the purpose that God has for your life. Because you will never find in another person what you're looking for. The only thing and only way you can find real fulfillment, satisfaction, and purpose in life is through a relationship with God. And the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. Okay? 
And so here's what Paul said. He said, it's good for you to stay unmarried. He said, that's me. I'm a single person. But he said, if they cannot control themselves, so let's not blame anybody else if we can't control things. He said, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so Paul is saying that if you are burning with passion, that nothing will put that passion out like marriage. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. That is not what he's saying. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. Okay? No, that is not what he's saying. I'm sorry that I even said that. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying that it is better to marry than it is to burn with passion. And I know sometimes we end that sentence with burn and we think to burn in hell. You may feel like you're burning in hell sometimes, but that's not what he's talking about. But burning with passion. And if you cannot control that passion, then it's better for you to get married than it is for you to remain single. But then there is an abrupt shift in this passage of Scripture because then he says to the married he said, I give this command, and notice he says this, not I, but the Lord. Now this gives him an authority to speak more so than his opinion. Paul is not giving us his opinion here on marriage. He is giving us what Jesus said directly in Matthew chapter 19. He's quoting the words of Jesus. And he says, this is not I, but this is the words of Jesus. So I can speak these words with authority. I can speak these words as though they are a command. And notice what he said, a wife must not separate from her husband. And then he says this in verse 11. He says, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And then he says that a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, you got to understand the culture in which this was written. Women in this culture were treated like nothing more than a piece of property. And men would marry a woman, and as soon as they had used her up and gotten everything out of her that they could, then they would divorce her and put her aside, leave her defenseless with no protection, exposed to the elements. And Paul is saying that that should not be so. That a husband must not divorce his wife. And then in verse 12, he said to the rest. So he spoke to the unmarried. He spoke to the married. Hey, I feel his pain here. I feel the tension. Because when you stand before a congregation like this, you've got all kinds. You've got single. You've got married. You've got those who are married who wish they were single. You've got those who are single that wish they were married. You've got young people who want to get married one day. And I mean, you've you got, it, it's, it's. It's, it's a pretty diverse crowd that you're trying to be relevant to and relate to. And so Paul is feeling that. And so he's talked to the unmarried, to the married. And now he says to the rest, or to all of you now, I say this, I, not the Lord. Now hold on just a minute because if we're not careful, we'll think, well, now he's just giving us his opinion. No, he's not. Just giving us his opinion. These words that we're about to read are just as inspired as the ones that we just read. They're just not a direct quote from Jesus or a direct quote from Scripture, but they are still the inspired words of the Holy Spirit. And he said, to the rest I say this, I not the Lord, if any brother, talking about a believer, has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And then he says, if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Because again, in that culture, they were very paganistic. And if they ever became a believer if they ever became a follower of Christ they just automatically assume now I got to go back home and I've got to divorce my unbelieving spouse and be celibate in order to do what God has commanded me to do and Paul said no 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 that is not what the scripture says he says that if a husband has a wife or if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and that unbeliever is willing to live with him or her, you are not to divorce them. Sorry to disappoint some of you this morning. But if your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay with you as a believer, then you are not to divorce. And then he goes on and he says in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. Now does that mean that 
her salvation has been transferred over to her husband. No, that isn't what it means. And it goes on and says the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. He is not saying that there's a transference of my salvation over to my unbelieving spouse. But he is saying that through the life that I live in that house, that their life can be transformed as a result of that. And not only that, but because I am a believer, if you're living in a home with an unbeliever, the grace of God is going to overflow from your life into the life of that unbeliever. They're going to experience blessings in that house simply because there's a believer in that house. And because of the grace that overflows from them, perhaps their lives will be transformed and the same with children until they reach, reach that age of accountability and they're able to make that decision for themselves. They're going to be blessed by the fact that they have a parent who is a believer. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, for if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. In other words, if you've done everything you can to make that relationship work and it still doesn't work and that unbelieving spouse wants to leave, let them leave. Oh, but pastor, if I just have a little bit longer, I know I can save them. If I just had a little more time, I know I can redeem them. I know I can deliver them. I know I can fix them. But listen to what Paul says when you go to the next verse, verse 16. He said, how do you know, wife, whether you'll be able to save your husband? And, and how do you know, husband, whether you will be able to save your wife? How do you know that? How do you know that just a little bit more time is all you need? How do you know that you are going to be able to be the one that changes them? And I think we all know that we cannot change anybody. The only person who can change anybody is God. The only power that can change anybody is the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And so he says, I know it's hard. Maybe for some of you to release, but if you've tried everything you can and that unbelieving spouse is just bound to determine, I'm out of here, I'm leaving, and you've done everything you can, let him go. It's what he says. But he said that is the last alternative because God's ideal for marriage is permanence. That God's ideal for marriage is, it is everlasting. That it is not to end here on this earth. So I want to talk to you this morning very quickly if I can about four things. How does passion die in relationships? What is it that takes the two that have become one but now the one has become two? What is it that destroys unity and oneness in our marriages? And here's one of those things. One is when celebration becomes frustration. When celebration becomes frustration, have you ever noticed that the whole time you're dating, and even early on when you get married, that some of the things that you celebrated then frustrate you now about that person? You know, when you were dating, you know, and you looked at him and you're like, oh, you're so funny. You got such a great sense of humor. That's what I love about you. But a few years into marriage, it's like, can't you be serious about anything? Or the guy says to her, you know, the thing that I love so much about you is you're so confident. You know what you want out of life in a few years in. I'm tired of you being bossy. I'm tired of you being so demanding. You celebrate those things. And, and usually what you celebrated the most was the things about them that was different about you. And, and that's where we get that statement that says opposites attract. And yeah, early on, opposites may attract, but how many of you know later on in marriages, opposites attack? <laughs> they attack. I don't know who came up with this rule. I didn't come up with it, but man, it's good. It's really good. It's called the 80-20 rule. And, and, and the 80-20 rule says something like this. You're not going to find any person on the face of the earth who's going to be able to meet 100% of your needs. You're just not going to do it. So if you're in a relationship and you're getting 80%, then that, that's a strong marriage. That's a strong relationship. 80% is good. 80% you're celebrating, but 20% is frustrating you. And, and do you know what a lot of people will do in situations like that? 
They will leave the 80% that's good, the 80% that they're celebrating, and they'll go after the 20% that frustrated them. And maybe I left a step out in that process. It's not just from celebration to frustration, but it goes from celebration to toleration to frustration, right? We, we tolerate it for a little while, but then it begins to frustrate us. Then it, it really begins to get on our nerves. Did you know that's exactly the same reason why people leave churches? I mean, 80% can be everything they're looking for. Man, I love the worship. I love the preaching. I love the children's ministry. I love the youth ministry. I love how this church just gets out in its community and wants to be light and transform its community. But, but there's this one thing. What? One thing? And so people leave where they've got 80% that's good to chase after the 20% that they're frustrated about. But listen to me, I want to give you a word of warning this morning that if you leave the 80% to chase after the 20%, you better make sure that that 20% is worth walking away from the 80% because what you're going to end up with is nothing but the 20% and you will have lost out on the 80%. Somebody ought to say amen right there. So why does passion die in marriages? When it goes from celebration to frustration. Here's the second thing, and that is when me, or when we, becomes me. Oh, this is where it's going to get a little bit tense in the room. I'm just hoping I got time to finish this thing today. I might have to split this up into two parts. But passion in marriages die when we becomes me. Listen to your pastor this morning. There is no me in marriage. I can't tell you how many times I have sat down with couples with marital counseling and one of them speak up and say, well, I just feel like I've lost myself. I feel you. In a sense, you did lose yourself. Because there is no place for me in marriage. I'm going to say that again. There is no place for me. The Bible says that the two shall become one. It's no longer about me. It is now about we. And now we don't make any me decisions anymore. All of our decisions are we decisions. I'm not getting a real good response right now. I ask you, don't put the walls up this morning. Don't get defenseless on me today. Now, some of you young men that are about to get married, I'm just going to tell you right now, she is about to take over your bathroom. I'm, I'm telling you, she's about to take over your bathroom. You might as well just go ahead and get ready for it. Might as well. I know there's no such thing as his and hers. There's no such thing as, as mine and yours in marriage. E- even though you might put your own stuff in, in separate drawers. But guys, I'm telling you, those young men, you young men that are here this morning, you might as well get ready. You're the one that's going to have to walk to the basement or walk upstairs to your closet. Because there's not going to be enough room in the main closet for your stuff. You're going to walk into your bathroom one day and see things you never thought you would see see you're going to see gels and you're going to see liquids that you know nothing about you won't even be able to pronounce them you won't even know what they're for it's a takeover and listen to me if you're not ready for it you're not ready for marriage oh somebody help me here this morning because there is no me in marriage And some of you that's been married for a long time, that's the reason that you've been married for a long time. It's because you've understand that it's no longer two. It's not I and you. It's us. It's we. We are in this thing together. And listen to this. There's going to be some times when you're going to have to carry your spouse when they can't carry themselves. There's going to be some times when your spouse is going through some difficult times in their lives and you're going to have to be the one that carries them through that difficult season of their life. It reminds me of this scripture in Mark chapter 2 verses 3 through 5 where you've got some men who have a friend that is paralyzed and they 
know he needs to get to Jesus, but he can't get to Jesus on his own. And the scripture said that some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Let me ask you this. Who do you love enough and who do you care about enough that you're willing to carry them when they cannot carry themselves? Because that's what marriage is all about. There will come a time when your spouse is weak. There will come a time when your spouse is ill. There will come a time when your your spouse is discouraged or maybe depressed. And they're going to need somebody that can carry them when they cannot carry themselves. And look at what happened in verse 4. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus. They're doing everything they can to get their friend to Jesus by digging a hole through the roof. And then they lowered the mat that the man was laying on. And I love this snake statement. When Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith? Those four men. When Jesus saw those four men's faith, not the faith of the paralyzed man, but the faith of the men who brought him. Sometimes it'll be your faith that gets your spouse through a difficult time in their life. They may be weak, but in the times they're weak, God will make you strong and God will help you get your spouse where they need to go when their spouse can't get there on their own. Somebody ought to help me preach this morning. Hallelujah. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. If you're still struggling with the whole me and we thing, just have a few kids. Talk about losing yourself. Just feel like I lost myself. You start having kids, it'll take you years to find yourself again. You won't even be able to find your way to the bathroom. But passion dies, marriages end when we becomes me. Here's a third reason passion dies in relationships, and that's when debtors become collectors. Ooh, yeah. Jesus talked about that. Stay with me. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 21. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? I can just hear a spouse going to Jesus saying, Lord, how many times I got to forgive my wife? How many times do I have to forgive my husband? Peter, Peter looked at Jesus. He said, Seven times? Because you see, Peter thinks he's going to impress the Lord that he could do it up to seven times. But Jesus answered and said, I tell you, not seven times, but 77. Actually, the better translation is 70 times seven. And he's not, he's not saying 490 times and on 491, you can just let them have it. It's not what he's saying. The seven, 70 times seven is the numbers of perfection. And he's saying, whatever it takes, perfection, perfection, completion to completion, whatever, whatever, ever how many times you have to, Because what Jesus is doing here is he's taking the lid and the limits off of grace and mercy that we are to extend to other people in our lives, especially to our spouses. And then he goes into this parable, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, that's a lot. 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And at this, the servant fell on his knees before him and said, be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. But the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. You do know this is a picture of you and I when we came to God. We had a debt we could not pay. And we're standing before God thinking that that's the way to have because of our legalistic, religious mindset. We think that the way to get to God and the way to be made right with God is to make sure that we've done everything that the law requires, that we pay every, we have a payback mentality. And it's hard for us to comprehend that there could be anybody that would say, I'm going to cancel your debt, that would have that kind of pity on us, that would cancel our debt and then allow us to go free. 
But that's what happens in this story. Now you would think, what would you think would happen now with this man's newfound freedom? You would think that he would now pay it forward. That because I've received grace, I'm going to extend grace. Because I've received forgiveness, I'm going to extend forgiveness. But notice what happens. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. 10,000 bags of gold was canceled and he was set free. This guy owes him a hundred silver coins. And what does he do? He grabbed him and began to choke him and said, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. He had a collector, not a debtor's attitude. Now, I know sometimes we read this parable and we say, how in the world could this guy be like this? I mean, he has just been forgiven much. Why is he not forgiving much? He's just had a huge debt canceled. Why is he not going to cancel the debt for this guy? I'll tell you why. It's because mentally he's still thinking wrong. It's because mentally he still has a payback mentality. And he's thinking still, I've still got to pay back the master. I've still got to pay back, even though the master's canceled the debt. You see, I guess what I'm trying to say is you will never be able to extend grace until you can learn how to receive grace. And he was struggling with how to receive the grace of God. I know we may not have ever looked at it like this before, but I saw this for the first time as I was looking at this parable, that this man still has a payback mentality. He still has a religious mindset that says, I've got to pay back. God what I owe him in order to have a relationship in order to be in good sorts with him he's having such a hard time believing that the debt can just be canceled and him set free and so what does he do he now goes out and he grabs this man who owes him very little and choked him and said pay me back what you owe me he demanded listen to me I don't mean to be insensitive I know that there are many in this room here today that have been hurt and that have been offended. But listen to me. What someone else has done to you is chump change compared to what we have done to a holy God. So how dare we Get up off of our knees after receiving the grace of God without measure. And then go choke somebody else wanting payback. And then notice what the scripture says. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused instead. He went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt, which makes no sense. If he's in prison, how's he going to work? How's he going to pay the debt? He made it impossible for the guy to pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. And then, therefore, I'm sorry. Let me get back to it. Then the master called the servant in and said, You wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you. Wow. And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured and he, until he should pay back everything he owes. Because see, that's the way it happens. If you have a payback mentality, you reap what you sow. If you're not willing to give forgiveness and offer forgiveness, it's the Lord's Prayer. The, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Paul said it like this in Romans 13 and 8. He said, no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So the only debt that we should have outstanding is the debt that I love you unconditionally I love you not gonna hold your sins against you not gonna hold your failures and your mistakes against you no the only debt that I owe you is to love you the way that Christ loved me because every one of us when we came to God we came as debtors 
I see myself in this parable because when I came to God, I could not pay back the debt that I owed to him. And I fell on my knees and I begged for mercy and I begged for grace. And the master had pity upon my life and he canceled my debt and he set me free. And every one of us sitting here in this room here today, we are here only because of the grace of God. Only because of God's grace. I got to hurry this up. Here's the last thing. The last thing. Passion dies in marriages. Passion dies in relationships. The one become two when covenant becomes contract. And you know, when I even say the word covenant anymore, I can tell people don't even really know what that word means anymore when you talk about a covenant. But we're really familiar with contracts because a contract is, is made between, it, it, it's, it's, it's a contract based upon mutual distrust. I don't trust you and you don't trust me. So we're going to have some exceptions and clauses in this contract that says if you do this, fine. If you don't, then the contract is broken. The contract is over. And, and there's always loopholes in contracts. That's the problem with contracts. There's always loopholes in those contracts to get out of those contracts. But listen to me this morning. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. And when they would make a covenant in Scripture, it was serious stuff. You know, when we get married today and we make a covenant, we symbolize that covenant through the exchanging of rings. We get a ring and she gets a ring. But how easy it is to take that ring off and sell it down at the pawn shop or put it on eBay or Facebook Marketplace. But in Scripture, it was a serious thing when people would enter into a covenant. They would take something like a bull and they would cut that bull in half and then in a figure eight they would together walk through the pieces of that bull seven times again talking about perfection and completion and they were saying that if I break the terms of this covenant may happen may what happened to this bull happen to me it was serious business they weren't playing around and listen to me I wasn't playing around when I stood before God and when I stood before people and I made a covenant with this woman on this front row that says for better or for worse. I wasn't playing when I said for better or for worse. I wasn't playing when I said in sickness and in health. I wasn't, pray I wasn't playing when I said for richer or for poorer. I wasn't playing when I said until death do us part. Why? Because marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. And it's amazing that when I was typing out some things this week about this message and I tried to type up the word covenant that instead of the word covenant coming up my spell checker wanted to change it to the word get this convenient contracts are convenient but covenant is not convenient covenant many times is inconvenient if you don't believe it read your scripture it was never convenient to God on many occasions but Jesus it wasn't convenient when Jesus left the portals of glory and he came here on this earth as a man as flesh and blood it wasn't convenient but he had a covenant it wasn't convenient when he was rejected by those that he came to and and those that he came to would not receive him they reject it wasn't convenient but he was keeping he had a covenant it was not convenient when he was in the garden of Gethsemane and his sweat was like great drops of blood it wasn't convenient but he was keeping he, he had a covenant with his people it wasn't convenient when they ripped the beard out of his face when they took sticks and beat him across the head with it it wasn't convenient when they spat upon him when they stripped his robe and when they tied him to a whipping post and flogged his back, it wasn't convenient, but he had a covenant. It wasn't convenient when they laid him down on an old rugged cross and through each wrist and through his feet, they nailed spikes and then they raised that cross up and with a thug it fell into the earth and then a soldier comes with a spear and plunges it into the side of Jesus and blood and water flows. It wasn't convenient, but he had a covenant. And hear me, you are here today I am here today 
because God had a covenant. And even though it was not convenient, God kept his terms of the covenant because God is a faithful God. He is always there in good times and in bad times. Amen. He's always there in darkness and in light. God is always there. God is faithful. God can always be counted on. And hear me this morning. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness, in health, until death do us part. It is a covenant. It's a covenant. Lord, help me this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, we thank you today for this wonderful institution called marriage. God, that you invented even before the family, even before the church. And your ideal, your purpose from the get-go, a man would leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two become one flesh. Now, Lord, we know that anything that you begin, the enemy fights. But we declare today, our marriages are worth fighting for. If you're in this room this morning and you carry the guilt and the shame of divorce, listen to me. God has not written you off. God still has a plan. And God has a purpose for your life. If you're here in this church this morning and you're looking for a church that demonizes divorce and condemns all divorcees to hell, listen to me, I'm sure you can find one of those churches somewhere, but this ain't it. Did you just hear me? This is not it. Because I believe that God still has a purpose and God still has a plan. And maybe you've already remarried. Listen, from this day forward, things can be different in this marriage. If you're here this morning and you're not married and you're contemplating marriage, from this day forward, you have the Word of God to stand upon. You got some warning signs to look for. Things that are just waiting for an open door to come in and destroy the oneness and the unity of your relationship. Father, I pray today for the salvation and the redemption of marriages at Summit and Church of God. I pray, Father, that every spouse in this room today, every husband, every wife, that if they have not yet, that they surrender their heart, their life, their relationship, their family, that they surrender it all to you. And Lord, I, I just pray today that your love, this holiday, this, this Valentine's Day season, God, that your love will overwhelm us. And just as the scripture that Jamie read earlier, Father God, that we would take to heart the fact that nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing can separate us from your love, Lord. Your love for us is so unconditional. It's hard for us to, to imagine, hard for us to accept. But we must receive it, Lord, so that we can be givers of it. We must receive your grace so that we can be extenders of your grace. We must receive your mercy so that we can be extenders of your mercy, Lord. So those that are overwhelmed with guilt and shame, I pray right now that you'll embrace the love of God. That you'll embrace the grace of God. So that you can extend His love and His grace. I'm going to ask those that are going public with their faith today through baptism. I'm going to ask you if you would to just stand right over here to my left. 
Gentlemen, if we can go ahead and take the lid off of this baptistry. I've talked today about covenant. The mark of the covenant or the symbol of covenant, as I said, they would cut a a bull in half and they would pass through it. And stay with me just a few more minutes. We're going to celebrate. Marriage, that symbol of covenant is the exchanging of rings. But as followers of Jesus Christ, the symbol of the covenant that we make with God is water baptism. It's our passing through from death to life. And I've often referred to um, this baptistry, I've often referred to it as a water grave. It's, It's where we go to die. Die to ourselves because as we enter into that covenant with God the Father, it isn't me anymore, it's it's we. And really, in that relationship, it's He. It's all about Him. But when we walk into this baptistry, we are buried with Christ that we might be raised with Christ to new life. In Christ. And this is that public visual demonstration, that symbol of the covenant that we're making in our heart to be followers of Jesus Christ. Hi, my name is Angela Freeman, and I have decided to follow the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Amen. Come on, Angela. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Be careful coming in here, honey. Angela, do you publicly profess before all of these people here today that you've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Hallelujah. Yes, I do. Amen. Sit down right there, honey. Upon your profession of faith and the authority given me as a minister of the gospel, it's my honor to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Amen. My name is Alyssa Ireland, and I've decided to follow Jesus. Amen. Come on, sweetie. Alyssa. Amen. Come on, let's get ready to celebrate. Sweetheart, do you publicly profess in front of all these folks today that you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? I do. Amen. If you'll have a seat upon your profession of faith. And the authority given me as a minister of the gospel. It is my honor to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son we and come the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. <laughs> we come alive Amen. I'm Morgan Moon and I've decided to follow Jesus. Amen, Morgan. Come on in. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Morgan, do you publicly profess before all these people here today that you've made a decision to follow Jesus? Amen. Say that one more time. Amen. Sweetie, upon your profession of faith, if you'll sit down, the authority given me as a minister of the gospel, it's my honor to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. We come alive in the river. My name is Andrew Parvin, and I have decided to follow Jesus. Oh, yes. (laughs) Amen. Come on in, Andrew. Andrew, do you publicly profess before all these folks here today that you have made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? I do. Amen. I just want to reconfirm. God has a king's daughter. (laughs) It's a word the Lord gave me for this young man. And I know that God is preparing. God is preparing. Andrew, upon your statement of faith, your profession of faith and the authority given me as a minister of the gospel, it is my honor to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. We come alive in the river. Hallelujah. Hi, I'm Emma Kate Thompson. I've decided to follow Jesus. Come on, Emma Kate. Amen. Man, this. 
Well, beautiful girl, do you publicly profess before all these people today that you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? I do. Amen. Imitate upon your profession of faith and the authority given me as a minister of the gospel. It's my honor to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We come alive in the river. We come alive in the river. Amen. We come alive in the river. Come on, Brennan. Let me see this. Come on in, Brennan. Brennan wasn't able to get in town in time to get his video made because he attends this incredibly awesome, marvelous university called Auburn University. War Eagle. He's got to put that in there. Brennan, we love you, buddy. I'm proud. A hand in the call of God is on your life. Do you publicly profess before these people today that you've decided to follow Jesus? I do. Amen. Brennan, upon your profession of faith, and the authority given me as a minister of the gospel. It's my honor to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son we and of the Holy Spirit. River. Amen. We Come on, let's get on our feet. Let's get on our feet and celebrate. celebrate today those who have decided to follow you God we celebrate marriage today and the wonderful institution that it is ordained and invented by you father we ask that you do a work in each and every one of our hearts and each and every one of our lives when we walk out of this place today may we be light may we shine bright Lord so this community can be changed and transformed for your glory in the name of Jesus we pray and everybody shouted amen well I hope that you were blessed and inspired by today's message we here at Summerton Church of God believe that God is a God who still does miracles. And we're seeing it on a weekly basis. People's lives being transformed by the power of God. Being saved, healed, and delivered for the glory of God. And we want you to experience it for yourself. So why don't you come and be our guest one Sunday here at Summerton Church of God. I look forward to personally meeting you.